Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 205 Gaming as a Spiritual Practice. We're joined this week by leading game designer Jane McGonigal to explore the relationship between games and well being and see what clues they might hold for the future of Buddhist practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This week we have another interview from Rohan of 21awake.com, another guest interview. So thank you again, Rohan, for taking the time to do another Buddhist Geeks episode. Not at all, Vince. And this time I spoke to Jane McGonigal, who I'll let uh, introduce herself. Hi, I'm Jane McGonigal. I live in San Francisco, California, and I'm a game designer. I actually design games that have the goal of making people's real lives better or solving real world problems. Wow, she sounds super geeky. She, she is. She's got some great ideas and she's doing some amazing work. And what I'm uh, really trying to do with the, the podcast that I do for Buddhist Geeks is to find people who are doing really amazing cutting-edge stuff and explore what the connection with Buddhism might be. And so that's what we got into today. So what did you guys talk about? Well, as you might know, Vince, her book's just come out called Reality is Broken. And so we explored some of the themes in that book, which is about gaming and the role of gaming in society. And then we went on a bit further and explored how uh, the connections between gaming and spiritual practice and even the connections between gaming and Buddhism and enlightenment itself. Yeah, and I understand that she's agreed to come speak at the Buddhist Geeks conference. That's right. And I think that's going to be really exciting because she'll bring a whole new dimension to that conversation. So really looking forward to her contribution late in the year in, in L.A. Okay, enough preamble, Vince. Here's me with Jane McGonagall. Jane, when I first got in touch with you, I found that you were actually already a Buddhist Geek subscriber. Yes. Could you tell me a little bit about, because that was actually surprised to me, because I just, I got in touch with you based purely on your work as a game designer. So just interested in how come you were a subscriber already and what's been your interest in Buddhism? Sure. Well, I've been studying Buddhist philosophy for probably about five years. I started when I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley, and like pretty much all graduate students, I was completely miserable and overwhelmed and totally lonely and hopeless. (laughs) And so... Fortunately, my twin sister had done her PhD at Stanford. She was two years ahead of me in her program, and she had found Buddhism while she was a hopeless, miserable, lonely (laughs) graduate student. So she introduced me to it. There's a great Zen monastery center out here in Palo Alto in the Bay Area that I started. Yeah, so I started reading a lot of books and listening to a lot of podcasts and starting a meditation practice. And once I started having the experience that one has when you start to practice and realizing that what a just tremendous thing it was, it started to really influence the way I thought about 
why we play games and how we can design games to end suffering. So that's where I came into to this. And of course, I have lots and lots of podcasts that, that I try and listen to as often as I can, you know, while I'm commuting on the Caltrain or I do a lot of traveling and I get scared when I fly. So listening to Buddhist podcasts helps me not be so scared. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. We should put that on the tin, maybe. As a <laughs> really excited to be talking to you right now because... I know you've got a book coming out early next year. The print version, at least, is coming out in early mm-hmm. 2011 called Reality is Broken. So I imagine it's good to get you now because I imagine you've got like an epic promotional tour coming up or something. Um, I do. <laughs> if you, so I was just wondering if you could bear to, it'd be great just to give a very little flavor as to what the book's about, not necessarily in loads of detail, but just to sort of sure. give us a bit of a flavor before we get into the rest of the conversation. Sure, yeah. So the full title is Reality is Broken, Why Games Make Us Better, and How They Can Change the World. And the first part of the book looks at the way games provoke positive emotions and how they help us achieve the kind of emotional goals and really basic human needs that that we really need out of life, like to do satisfying work and to strengthen our social relationships and to feel like we're mastering something and, and to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And then the second half of the book looks at how we can take that amazing power of games to provoke these four positive states and try and direct it at addressing big problems like hunger, poverty, climate change, education, and healthcare. Great. And when I first heard about uh, your work, it was with the game called World Without Oil. Mm-hmm. Um, although the first game I actually personally engaged with was Superstruct. Mm. Um, and I guess when, yeah, the sort of issues you've talked about, sort of education, energy crises, climate change, there aren't many bigger things than that. And I'm just really interested in with this whole area of using gaming to raise awareness and explore these sort of serious social issues. Where do you think that type of game can go? Well, I think the main role that these games can play now is turning ordinary people into what we call super empowered, hopeful individuals. And by the way, when I say we, um, I'm also the director of game research and development at the Institute for the Future, which is a nonprofit research group in Palo Alto. And a lot of the games that I've made have been with them, like Superstruct. And so we're trying to take ordinary people who feel like they don't have a positive role to play in big planetary scale efforts, that we're trying to give them the sense that they can, as individuals, contribute to changing the world for the better. And there are a lot of games where we're, you know, we're trying to do real work, where players are being empowered to start their own social enterprises or to teach their neighbors um, how to start their own community gardens. So there are like real practical results. But I think the biggest thing is really just awakening people to the possibility that they have a part to play in making the future and that they can use whatever talents and skills and abilities they have to solve the world's toughest problems. That that is something they can do. They don't just have to save the world in video games. They can save the real world. Sure, I think that's one of your great messages around there's so much energy and attention going into gaming and how to harness the power of that for good. Um, And if I could just say, it's... You know, it's not just the the time and energy that we spend gaming, it's the beliefs and the 
self-confidence that we develop in games. And when mm. we play games, we feel like the best versions of ourselves. We feel so smart and capable. And we have all these allies who can help us achieve our goals. And we're more likely to set really ambitious goals and to stick with them, be really resilient in the face of failure. So it's a, it's a very special kind of energy. You yeah. know, if, if we were spending all that time watching TV, I wouldn't say, oh, people who watch TV could save the world. Gaming actually puts us in a state of mind and a state of heart that makes us more likely to do something extraordinary. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that's exactly what I sort of want to explore into, which is there are a couple of quotes of yours that I sort of find really arresting, certainly from a, from a sort of Buddhist or meditation angle. One is what one you sort of mentioned before, which is how games were designed for the alleviation of suffering. And then yeah. you said something else around, and I found this really amazing, sort of the way you describe gameplay as being the neurological opposite of depression. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. as you just said, that through gaming, we're actually developing qualities and behaviors which are supportive of our well-being and, like you said, of being our best skills to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess from a Buddhist angle, the way you sort of use the phrase alleviation of suffering is really striking because that's a real classical definition of how the Buddha himself sort of talked about his own yeah. work and his own teachings. Yeah, and you have this sort of lovely story about the sort of... Was it from Herodotus, the story about games being used as a way of keeping a community in ancient Greece happy during difficult times? Yeah, yeah. Actually, shall I tell a 30-second version of that story? Yeah, sure. I was so inspired when I found this story. I found it in graduate school. And uh, actually, the person who dug up the story was Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who is one of the founders of positive psychology. Back in 1976, he said we should start using science to study happiness and well-being. So he actually dug up this Herodotus story as his way of saying, you know, maybe we should look at games as being a, a real clue to happiness and alleviating suffering. So the story that he dug up, it's the first written history of gaming. It's the first time anybody sat down and tried to explain why human beings play games, where do they come from, who invented them. And Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek philosopher, he was writing about people even older than the ancient Greeks, the ancient Lydians, he said that the Lydians invented games, particularly dice games, when they were suffering a famine. They had an 18-year famine, and the people were suffering so extraordinarily. They were starving. They were fighting over limited resources that they had this crazy solution, which was to play games. They invented all of these dice games. On alternate days, they would just spend the whole day playing these really immersive, addicting dice games. They would come together in big groups. It was really social. And they would get so immersed in the gameplay that they would forget how hungry they were and they wouldn't need to eat. And then on the next day, they would eat just as normal. And then on the next day, they'd play dice games and they'd be so immersed, they wouldn't have to eat. And of course, anybody who plays games today has probably had that experience of sitting down to play a game and realizing you missed dinner or you haven't eaten you know, for hours because you're so engaged. And so Herodotus has actually passed 18 years that way, being able to come together, band together, and really have this state of immersed enjoyment together as a community that help them not suffer through this really horrible time. And I just love the idea that that's why we play games. We don't play games for fun. I mean, if there's something I really really can't stand. It's the idea that the greatest gift of games is fun, which it doesn't seem to me to be true at all. I mean, we can have fun doing anything, but what the great gift of games is to stop suffering. And that's a lot of what my book is about, is looking at four ways that we suffer 
in contemporary society, whether it's feeling like, you know, there's nothing we can do with our own hands that makes a difference and we have no satisfying work. Whereas we sit down to play a game, we know what our goal is. We are able to follow through with our own plan and we see the results of our actions. And at the end of the end of the game, we feel like we have sort of satisfyingly productive effort that we've made. And you can trace that through you know, all the other different kinds of suffering that we just sort of have in our daily lives. Anyway, that story has been really influential for me thinking about it, but also to think about when you look at the faces of gamers, there's been some great research where researchers film or photograph the faces of gamers while they're playing. It's extraordinary. The state of positive engagement is profound. And it made me realize, looking across all the literature, when we are truly playing a good game, we found the game that we enjoy, we're not suffering. And I think that's one of the big reasons why we see so many people spending so much time playing games is because we are suffering so much in daily life because of how society's designed, because of the voices in our head that tell us, you know, that we're doing it wrong or we're never going to be able to do something that matters. And we're using these games to alleviate our own suffering. And so, of course, I want game designers to think thoughtfully about that and think about making games that really do provide something that is real and positive. So... When I think of certainly my own personal meditation training and that in general, I like to define meditation as a development of, of great qualities and that we develop the qualities that allow us to uh, navigate the difficulties in life. And I think it's almost directly analogous to how you're describing the qualities that come through games, be they engagement or optimism or a sort of social relation and so that on the sort of Venn diagram of these things (laughs) it starts me thinking okay we got games on one side which are supporting our well-being through all this really immersive and social and dynamic and narrative-led experiences and then we've got meditation and contemplative practice on the other side which is a form of training which is developing qualities as well, sort of um, in a slightly different way. And I suddenly think about how might those two things come together? And like, I've been thinking about how games themselves could develop the qualities directly. So I started playing around. <laughs> cool, um, cool. So here's, a, here's an idea for you, actually. Well, here's All right. a, here's a um, get your feedback on this. So, so if the great mission of Buddhism is enlightenment or awakening mm-hmm. um, in practice, and so looking at the sort of classical myth of the Buddha himself, it's classic sort of hero's journey, Super Mario style story. <laughs> he wow. starts the Buddha says Super Mario. <laughs> I think you've got a best-selling title there. I love that. He, he's, well, there's no, there's no princess. Well, there sort of is, but she has a bit of a cameo role rather than the main role. He's got a big mission. His mission is the end of suffering. He's sort of really motivated by that. And he goes through a series of challenges. So it's classic hero's journey. And he trains through the challenges. And then even at the end, in the classical legend, there's a big boss at the end. (laughs) So this personification of doubt and arrives while he's sitting underneath the tree. The final challenge is the overcoming of doubt. And that's classically personified as a big monster. So it's really basic sort of game... Uh, right. game ideas were coming to my mind and then I thought okay that's the myth that's the sort of archetypal story but what's it like in actual practice so I'm talking about what's known as almost sort of classical Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism so one of the oldest forms of Buddhism and th- th- that type of Buddhism love- loves lists mm. and um, in one of those lists is what's called the seven factors of awakening mm-hmm. uh, which are different qualities the idea being, if we train in these qualities, 
the natural end when we're really well trained in these qualities will be enlightenment or awakening and these qualities are things like joy concentration mm -hmm. mindfulness mm. energy mm. Um, and i hear a lot of those things in how you talk about games and so i love it so, yeah well so can we frame awakening or spiritual practice as like a multi-level game <laughs> in which the epic win to use your terminology is yeah. enlightenment I love it. I love it. Okay, so great. <laughs> I'm planning the game. I'm designing the game as we speak. So, do you have the list of seven yeah, in front of you? I okay. Do. Quick, quick. What are the seven? Mindfulness, investigation or curiosity. Ah, oh, yes. Energy or brightness. Uh huh. Joy, calm, concentration, mm -hmm. and equanimity. I love it. I so, love so, it. The last three often are considered. Calm, concentration, and equanimity are very different types of mind state when you sort of really get into it. So um, they're the seven. Yeah. Okay. So this is great. So, well, there are two uh, possibilities here, right? So one, you could frame um, awakening as this epic win. You could actually make a game where you teach these through it. But I think to me that the possibility that leaps right to mind is all of these are skills and ways of being that you practice when you play a good game, right? Yes. So the, the kind of concentration, we see people sit down to play, and even people who you know, have been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, really intractable cases, um, have been clinically shown that when they're playing a good game, they actually are able to fully concentrate on the game, and, and suddenly all these medical diagnoses go away um, because of how how much mindfulness and concentration you have to practice to be fully engaged. You know, when you were talking earlier about the sort of Venn diagram between elements of awakening and, and gameplay, for me, the really, the really core one is wholehearted participation. That was actually a phrase that I pulled out of, out of a Buddhist podcast, out of a Living Compassion podcast, actually. I heard a monk use the phrase wholehearted participation to describe a Buddhist way of approaching life, to be fully present to the moment and totally open and curious and joyful about whatever that moment brings and up for the challenge of that moment. And to me, that's what describes being a gamer, that you are open to whatever challenge presents itself, you approach it with curiosity, that you are totally mindful of the environment. You have this brightness, this sort of both optimism, but also just a positive energy to what you're doing um, and the joy of being fully engaged with these challenges and approaching them with, with equanimity. You know, gamers fail all the time. Gamers fail 80% of the time and they don't beat themselves up over it. They just keep making that kind of right effort to achieve the goal. But if they don't achieve it, they don't bring their hands and beat themselves up over it. They just make the best effort. Yeah. Um, and so I think you could really take a whole generation of gamers and show them that they're actually training along this path already. I, was, I really liked the um, episode of Buddhist Geeks about what do young people want yeah. and sort of where will the young Buddhists come from. So your suggestion here about using these seven aspects to awakening are, uh, it seems to me, like one way to think about the young, I, I the next generation of Buddhists. I, I really like that distinction you made between being sort of almost interventionist and going, you will train in these qualities through mm -hmm. the game, or then being the natural byproduct of a successful game. I think that's much yeah. more powerful. And I really like this idea of gaming as spiritual practice. This seems. Like I love it too. <laughs>
We've now defined a new mission. I love this. Oh, um, I'm, I'm literally those qualities are on my whiteboard because I'm thinking about this all the time. Excellent. So. excellent. Um, well, so. I'm going to put them. I'm going to put them on my wall too. I love it. I love the idea that this could be the next book too about about games. Because I said the next book I write, I want to be even more explicit about suffering and well-being in a sort of Buddhist sense than I was able to in this book. That's, um, that's really interesting because we've seen games and physical health really take off with the, mm-hmm. obviously like we fit as they're way down the road yeah. but like nike grid and connect yeah. coming out so my natural idea from that is that mental health is the next big thing in games i think so i think so and, you know we already are seeing that people are self-medicating with games there's been some great research that shows that people who have symptoms of clinical depression or anxiety are more likely to spend more hours playing mmos than other gamers, and they increase their hours the more that their symptoms manifest. And they actually use it to treat their own depression and anxiety. And so I really like the idea that instead of having this kind of accidental self-medicating phenomenon, that we could actually look at games and the role that they can play in people managing their own quality of life and and their own mental well-being. Um, So it's not some sort of accidental fix but that people can be really conscious about the role that games can play that way that's great and i love the idea for the second book so where, where is the second book at the moment in your head on your website <laughs> i don't know you know i told my husband while i was writing the first book that no matter what happened even if the first book is wildly successful to never ever ever let me write a book again because it was really difficult <laughs> and, and made me crazy but of course now once it's done you forget you love having got it all down on paper so of course i'm already thinking what the next book will be well, there you go. Um, maybe it's all about the gaming as spiritual practice. But I, I love that. <laughs> it's interesting because for a long time, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you know how this is. You can't really infuse your spirituality and all of your professional practice. Um, yeah. But I kind of am dying to just out myself <laughs> as, you know, really showing how much this is informed my work and that I think a lot of other game designers, too, are, are thinking about this. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, 
you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.